You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision podcast, where we cover finance, business, and the global economy. For Real Vision, I'm Max Wheatley, and I'm joined today by Scott Lynn, the CEO of Masterworks, a company that is making it easier for everybody to invest in blue chip artwork. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Max. Well, you uh, were obviously going to be talking about Masterworks today. Um, there was something you know, in that statement about Masterworks being able to allow everybody to invest in blue chip artwork. We've all probably heard about blue chip stocks here in the Real Vision audience, but what makes a piece of artwork blue chip? Yeah, so blue chip is really a term that we've coined to help uh, you know, typical investors kind of understand the art market. So when we say blue chip, we really refer to art created by the top 100 artists in terms of transaction volume. So these are these are household name artists like Picasso, Basquiat, Warhol, etc. And if you look at those top 100 artists, uh, the top 100 artists actually constitute 64% of the 68 billion dollar annual market. So it's very high, very highly concentrated within the within the blue chip segment. Okay. Well, I may have gotten ahead of myself a little bit there. Why don't we go back and talk about Masterworks? I know you guys have been around since 2017. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the origin story of Masterworks, how you got into this idea and, and where you guys are today? Yeah, completely. So, um, you know, I guess my background is I've been starting technology companies for the past uh, the past 20 years or so. Um, saying that makes me seem older than I feel. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, for the past 20 years and then also collecting art um, at, a, at, about, at about the same time. So I bought my first piece of art when I was 19 years old, uh, my first good painting and, you know, I was collecting kind of in, in the, uh, the mid to late nineties and then, you know, continued collecting thereafter. And, you know, I would say the art markets changed a lot in the past 20 years, but the one thing I've realized and the one thing I've appreciated is that the asset class is, is super interesting, right? Like if you, if you look at the asset class, uh, at least in that blue chip segment that we referred to uh, it's historically outperformed the S and P Masterworks did the first correlation study between art and other asset classes with Citigroup last year, and we concluded that art's effectively an uncorrelated asset class. So we we believe it has a role in every portfolio. Um, but historically, the only way that people can invest in it is if they have millions of dollars to buy a painting. So it's it's not really accessible to to uh, honestly ninety nine point nine percent of the world. So that that was really the the genesis behind Masterworks. How do we take this outperforming uncorrelated asset class? and make it investable by anyone. Yeah, and so how do you go about doing that? We, it, Having been on your website, it looks like you're selling shares of different works. So how does a work end up at Masterworks? Does somebody sell you a whole painting? Is somebody partnering with you to sell shares and they still own percentages of it? Is it some combination of that? How does, how does an artwork, a piece of work get, get broken up into shares? Yeah, so maybe let me break down our acquisitions process. Or I guess you know, in a typical um, investment sense, investment sense, what you would think of as our investment process. So, we we have a research team at Masterworks. Really, um, what we believe is the the best research team in the art market to understand returns. Uh, so we've collected a, a large amount of proprietary data 
on the art market dating back to the 1960s. Um, and the really cool thing about the art market is roughly half of that $68 billion is traded at public auction. So um, contrary to what a lot of people might think in terms of like how this is a very opaque market, it's very hard to understand. It's actually, it's actually not, right? Like half of the transaction volume is public. So there's a very big data set that you can analyze to understand how different segments are performing. So our research team has brought all the data in-house. We publish a lot of it on, on the Masterworks website within the price database section. Um, so investors can just go and look at the data themselves. But um, once, we, once we've collected that data, we then use that to understand which artists we think are accelerating most quickly and which are most investable. And then we take that artist list. Today, that's about 40 or 45 artists. And we hand it off to our acquisitions team that goes out and finds particular examples uh, by those given artists. And, and today, I think, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think we're tracking something like 1,200 different paintings that are in you know, some stage of negotiation, either just an offer or, or full, you know, fully through to, um, to negotiation um, for those 45 different artists. So you know, that's, that's how we think about acquisitions at a very high level. Once we find a painting that we like, uh, both from an artist that we think is accelerating as well as an example at the right value, we'll purchase that painting with our own capital. And then we effectively sell it off to investors and then go through the process of securitizing it with the SEC. Okay. And then from there, are you guys generating any income on the side, like renting out that artwork because it's multiple owners? What is it? It's like the Stanley Cup. Everybody gets it for a week. How do you deal with, how do you deal with multiple owners? Yeah, it's actually, it's actually a great question. We don't, you know, we, so we, we obviously have lots of shareholders in each of these paintings. I mean, most paintings, small paintings will have three or 400 shareholders Big paintings will have several thousand. Um, you know, we 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 like the idea of quote unquote renting out paintings. You know, we haven't actually seen uh, much opportunity to do that yet. Like a lot of people talk about it, but I, I don't think it's uh, there's there's a huge a huge opportunity there. Usually, when you're investing in art, you're investing in it for capital appreciation. So we tell investors to think about these as, as three to seven year holds, where they're you know they're they're effectively a liquid. We did launch a trading platform. Uh, roughly six months ago, so we now do have investors trading shares in these in these different paintings. But the the secondary markets are somewhat early at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you basically hold the investment until we sell the painting or until you sell your shares, and that's that's how you recognize a gain. Okay, so if you're not selling it on the trading side, you are beholden to your exit. So when you guys determine to sell the painting, um, how does that work? Do, is there a vote on when to sell a painting, or are people sort of signing away there? their right to that decision. It sounds like you have a great team making those decisions. Yeah. It's a it's a good question. So we actually it's it's interesting. Our our very first vehicle that we did, we had a um we had a voting structure, a voting governance structure in that vehicle, which basically required that everyone vote on a sale. I think what we realized after that first vehicle, which we, we probably should have realized in, in general, is that um, you know, the art market moves very fast and making decisions quickly is really important. So for, for future vehicles, any of the current vehicles today, it's really up to Masterworks when to ultimately sell the painting. Uh, and we, we don't have that voting structure, but we did. You know, I think we, we kind of like that idea high level. Just the, and I think we're influenced um, you know, by, the, by the crypto community by thinking about voting and trying to introduce that into these vehicles. But I think for this particular asset class, it's just challenging. Yeah. And so then who are the buyers? Are you selling to high net worth individuals who are putting this in their collections? Um, selling to museums. Who is the who's the exit strategy here? 
Yeah. So when you, when you think about the art market today and, you know, I, I always tell people this, so this is art as an asset class is, is one of the oldest asset classes there are, right? Like uh, Sotheby's one of the top two auction houses just recently went private from the New York stock exchange. And a lot of people don't realize this, but when they went private, they were, they were the oldest company on the New York stock exchange. So they, they just turned, I think 275 years old last year. So like this is an asset class that that literally has just kind of been traded the same way or transacted the same way for centuries. In the world we live in today, it's just really hard for us to wrap or wrap our head around any business that's been around for centuries, right? Like <laughs> like 20 years ago in tech feels like generations ago, um, let alone 275 years ago. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I forgot where I was going with that point, but no, but how it's how it's being sold, who's buying it, and you bought oh, yeah, up Sotheby's. Yeah, which I think brings up an interesting point about right. inefficiencies in the market. I mean, Sotheby's takes a big cut. What do you guys take? Yeah, sorry. So the point, yeah. So the point, let me come back to that. So the point I was going to make was that, um, yeah, so it's literally been traded between the ultra wealthy for hundreds of years. Um, so those are the people who are buying these paintings today. And those are the people that really, you know, transact the, the majority of the $68 billion a year that, that is traded in the art market. Um, Masterworks is really the first company that's taking people who are not quote unquote collectors and introducing them to art as an asset class, right? So we have 90,000 plus investors on the platform today. Um, that's growing, you know, by more than 10,000 a month. Um, and these people really have, have no, you know, in, I, th I think just most people in general have no experience with art as an asset class uh, until, they, until they stumble upon Masterworks. So we're educating people from, from the ground up. Yeah. And then some asset classes, you have to be accredited. You have to either basically be a millionaire or have a certain level of income that they say you must be smart enough to be able to invest in this high risk asset. Who is allowed to invest in art? Is it is it regulated? Yeah, we, we have all types of investors. So these are qualified public offerings. Um, you know, if you go to the SEC's website um, to a tool called Edgar, and you, you search for Masterworks, you can, you know, see all the different Masterworks offerings. And it's kind of cool. I mean, you can read about a painting going public, which feels very similar to like Uber going public, but, you know, rather than a company, it's a painting uh, with risk factors, et cetera. So um, they're qualified public offerings. Anyone can invest. I would say our, our average investor is investing, you know, close to $10,000. Our small investors are investing, you know, $500 or $1,000. Our big investors are investing a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, and then it's, you know, everything in between. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you do give access to, to people who traditionally couldn't be in the market, but what about those people who are already in the market? How are they using Masterworks, the high net worth individuals, to maybe not take on the full risk of buying a painting to get partial exposure? Is that something you're seeing as well? Well, I think what we found very early on, which, which maybe, um, you know, maybe will change over time, but I think we found very early on that people in the art world uh, who are collecting today are not really interested in investing in these vehicles. And I guess, you know, that would be analogous to like trying to sell a REIT to a real estate developer. Like they're just, you know, we're just trying to sell an investment product to someone. If they're, if they're a collector already, you know, even if they're not a great collector, as long as they self-identify as being a collector, I think they just think they can do it better than we can. Um, and that's probably true of any asset class, right? So we, we've seen most of our traction with people who are not, who are not collectors. Okay. And then if you, let's say you are somebody who you know, listens to this podcast and you're excited about it, besides going to Masterworks, 
how do you find out about investing in the arm market? You said it's not opaque and there's, there's good information out there. You can see the public sales, but what are some of the resources people can look at? Are there any books that you read in, in your beginning and collecting to, to get you into this? Yeah. So I think, so I mentioned, you know, I've been collecting for 20 years and, and the art markets changed um, very dramatically throughout that period of time. And the, the one thing that's changed, maybe stating the obvious is the internet, right? So in the mid nineties, there, there weren't really websites that you could go to to check auction sales uh, within the art market. So you, you know, you would, you would be interested in buying a Picasso and you would go to a dealer and you would say, Hey dealer, you know, what's this Picasso worth? And he would tell you a number that's 300% what it's worth. <laughs> right. And then you would have to go to an appraisal firm. But you, it was very, very difficult to actually figure out what was something worth today. It's very different. You have websites like, like Artnet and art price. Um, we slightly prefer art price over, over Artnet. And you know, you, you go to those websites, you search by artist, and you can see every single public auction sale that's happened around the world for the past several decades. So I think <clears throat> just the, <clears throat> the ability to have access to that data is really is, is a game changer. Yeah. So you talked about capital appreciation and it being an uncorrelated asset. Um, having read some of your information on your website, it does seem to be correlated to one thing, and that is the purchasing power of high net worth individuals. Can you talk to us about why you think that the art market will continue to be in this long-term bullish trend and, and I mean, it's basically a trade on income inequality. Uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's only a trade on income inequality, although that's, that's definitely a defining factor, right? So we, there's no question that, that we believe that our prices are correlated to the growing top 1%, <clears throat> which, you know, we can talk about risks, risks related to that as well. So I think that's one thing that drives our prices. The second thing that drives our prices, which is, is really critical to understand, is art's probably the only asset class where you have a continuously decreasing supply. So an artist, um, I use this example all the time, but an artist uh, named Jackson Pollock painted all these drip paintings in his life, right? And many, many of your listeners are probably familiar with, with Jackson Pollock. So I've owned, I personally own two different Pollocks. Um, so I know Pollock's market uh, very well. So there's, there's 23 uh, Pollock drip paintings, I think, left in private collections. Most of those paintings are B or C examples. I think there's one or two that are probably A examples. Uh, but for the B or C example ones, they're still selling for, you know, $30 million. And the reason they're selling for $30 million is because every single other Pollock has been donated to a museum or institution and they're out of circulation. So the dynamic that happens when an artist dies is they, they stop producing work. Collectors buy their paintings or they've already bought their paintings. Then they slowly start donating them over time. So you have a continuously shrinking supply until there's nothing of nothing else left. And, and today, when someone decides to own a Jackson Pollock, like those 23 paintings are what, what you have to choose from if they're for sale. So that's a that's a really unique characteristic of of the asset class. And I don't think there's any other asset class that's that's like that. Fine wine. Fine wine. There you go. Yeah, that's actually that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, fine wine. Well, no, because it, it 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 brings up a question though about uh, I don't know if you've seen that documentary on Netflix. Uh, sour grapes with yeah, uh, the that. guy yeah, yeah. who was the the forger, and then one of my favorite films of all time is uh, Orson Welles' film from the seventies, F for Fake, where he he goes through this famous art forger. Uh, I'm sure that that's something that you want to stay away from. You have authenticators. How do you go about making sure that all of these works are authentic? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So I'm, I'm actually on the board of this this nonprofit called the International Foundation for Art Research, and we um, we the, it's the leading nonprofit that focuses on authenticity. So I know way too much about this topic. Um, you know what I would say very generally is art at the high end of the market, with a handful of exceptions, is you know generally does not have authenticity problems, right? If you're buying a $10 million painting, usually that painting has been to many museums, it's been exhibited, it's in lots of books. Um, there's a long trail of, of kind of provenance and exhib- exhibition history. So you, you, you tend to see most fakes at the low end of the market, you know, call it, call it paintings or even the print market where prints are less than a couple thousand dollars. Um, like Salvador Dali is probably one of the most faked artists there are because all of his prints are, are just commonly faked and he has the signature, which looks like a triangle. So it's, <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a pretty easy signature to fake as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, there, there's, a, it's very difficult at the, at the lower end of the market to kind of understand what is real and what's not real. And it's not cost effective to frankly go through the process of understanding whether or not something's real. So it's, it's, um, it's much more problematic, but, it, but in the segment that we're playing out, which is kind of this, one to ten million dollar painting segment. There's there's not really uh, that much in question. Mm-hmm. And what about art outside of the painting segment? Do you have any sculpture or I mean, now what what constitutes art is a is a very broad definition. Uh, yeah, we we don't. So if, you know, when we when we focus, I guess, on what we think is most investment grade, paintings tend to appreciate the most. Um, prints and drawings generally don't appreciate. There's, there's some exceptions there. Uh, sculpture is important depending on the artist. So you take an artist like Giacometti, who's, who's well known for sculpture. Um, obviously, obviously his sculpture is important, but, uh, but you know, to date we've really only bought paintings at some point we may buy sculpture, but, but so far it's really, really only been paintings. And does that have to do with displayability that, that it's just that much easier to hang a painting on the wall? It really has to do with our artist list. So, out of the forty-five artists that we we think are most interesting right now, none of them really do sculpture. I guess the only one that would do some sculpture um, is an artist named Cause, which many many of you are probably familiar with. Um, but we we actually prefer his paintings from an investment perspective rather, rather than the sculpture. Okay. All right. So let's say you've you've heard the case and you're buying into the idea of. of getting some exposure to fine art in your portfolio, how do you go about making decisions about sizing, market timing? How, how do you think about that? I mean, it really comes down to, so when, when we, you know, when our research team goes through the data that we have in the art market and we come up with those 45 artists, that's probably one of the most important decisions because there's obviously thousands of artists in the art market. And we know that that appreciation rate is directly correlated to artist or mostly correlated to artist. So meaning, you know, if you choose the wrong artist, it doesn't matter how great the painting is that you buy by that artist, you've still chosen the wrong artist, right? So getting getting those those artists right is 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 the most important thing. And then after that, you know, frankly, since our acquisitions team now is tracking over a thousand paintings, we're very selective what we're buying. We're buying less than one percent of what we look at. Uh, so it comes down to example, is it is it a recognizable example by the by the artist and then value or are we buying something at a good value um and you know we're buying now 100 150 million dollars a year in art so we're not buying that much to where um we still can't be selective like we're still pretty selective with with what we're purchasing um so yeah there's there's lots of good offerings like we you know we'll see lots of offerings to hit the platform that are 20 percent, 25 percent below appraised value 
Um, yeah. And how much of that is you guys recognizing a deal when you go out and buy something? Uh, there's, I was talking to somebody about like investing in royalties. I think it's sort of a similar alternative asset looking at um, royalties for musicians. And you know, I thought, what a great time. They earn most of their income from touring. I'm sure there are some musicians who are levered up right now and are selling 10 years of royalties to pay for the yeah. house or whatever like that. Do you see the same sort of thing where somebody's business goes through a hard time and they have to offload a collection and you guys are almost doing distressed investing? Yeah, you know, so there's two answers to that. So the, the first answer is that from an individual collector perspective, we're not really seeing it. We we you know, I mentioned earlier in the uh in the podcast that we had this this project where we did a correlation study, the first one ever on art as an asset class, um, with Citigroup and compared art to other asset classes uh, about a year, year and a half ago now. And we we concluded in that in that study that art was uncorrelated, right? So we said if you look at the dot com boom in two thousand, art prices increased. If you look at 08, 09, it was most most closely correlated to public equities at a correlation factor of 0. 0.4. 2016, the art market decreased, public equities increased. You know, ta-da, it's an uncorrelated asset class. And then we published their support and then corona hit. <laughs> so so then we're like, oh, you know, I hope, I hope we were right. And uh, sure enough, you know, Corona happened in June. We saw 22 artists set records. Um, prices continued to increase dramatically. Volume went down just because, you know, there weren't as many auctions happening, but um, but prices definitely did not. So we haven't seen sort of that, you know, you know, probably really even that top, you know, one-tenth of one percent segment of the population selling um you know, for sellers, I guess, in this environment. But what we are seeing is we are seeing actually museums for the first time ever starting to look at deaccessioning, so selling work. Uh, the Brooklyn Museum recently did that. The Cleveland Museum recently did that. And museums are just, you know, it's very challenging because they there's no ticket revenue, obviously, so that, you know, their operating budgets are have a lot of pressure on them. And, and, and a lot of them, the only way they can see surviving is by selling selling part of the collection. So that's the one, the one part of the market that we are seeing changing um, or we are seeing change because of, because of COVID. Okay. And you know, you talk about the, the correlation to, to the purchasing power of ultra high net worth. I think this is a good opportunity for us to get into some of the risks. Uh, so you, you said the market went down in 2016. What, what happened in 2016 that you think uh, played into the market going down? Yeah, so we don't know, but our but our hypothesis is that Brexit happened and capital controls in China happened. Mm. Uh, so we think those two things led to our prices decreasing, um, and and I would honestly probably say capital controls in China more so than Brexit. So the ability to get money out of China, um, you know, we we've we've seen a huge run up over the past ten years in the art market with with. Um, the Chinese and you know Hong Kong in particular has become kind of one of the the global centers of the art market, and I think I think China now, broadly speaking, is something like twenty five percent of the art market, which is basically the same as the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're they're definitely a, a, a huge huge player. Um, you know what what are the risks and how could art prices decrease in the future? I think it's whatever the risks are to the top 1% um, because supply, you know, the, the, the dynamic of supply decreasing, is not going to change. That's, that's always going to be there. But I do think things like wealth taxes in New York city right now, there's a proposed billionaire tax. Um, 
you know, I think I think that so some of those changes could could certainly hurt the art market. Now, those really need to happen on a global basis, not really a U.S. basis. It's it's easy for us in the U.S. to always kind of think of our own world here, but but the U.S. is only twenty five percent of the art market. So globally, U.S., Western Europe, um, China primarily, um, you know, constitute the majority of the art market. Yeah, and did China, as as that seemed to be probably over the last you know few decades, probably a new market uh, coming in, did they change the tastes of what was hot, or did they sort of follow trend for what was happening in the West? Yeah, it's really interesting. So when when China first started uh, emerging, a lot of people expected. I think wealthy Chinese to buy their own history, um, and what we found is they they just were uninterested in it. So they they really did focus on Western art, um, and substantially substantially fueled the growth in in a lot of Western art. So the, you know the Chinese really haven't been. I think there's exceptions to that. Like I'm not I'm not that familiar with sort of the decorative arts markets, um, things like vases, etc. But I think they have they have been they have been pretty influential with. With Western art and have generally ignored um, a lot of their their own art. Okay, and then any growing new pockets of interest in the art market, or is it is it pretty much dominated by those players? I think it's dominated by those players. I mean, we saw we saw Russia become a big part of the art market for a period of time. Um, you know, I think that was probably you know, a handful of oligarchs, to be honest, <laughs> you know, call it, call it 50 oligarchs or something like that, that probably substantially moved the market. Um, we, we don't see that much activity from Russia in today's world. Um, so, you, you know, throughout, again, throughout this asset class, which has been around for hundreds of years, there are countries that kind of come in and out depending on where wealth's created. And, and um, yeah, it can be very influential depending on, depending on the moment in time. Okay, so then what is what is the big trend right now? You talked about COVID having happened and not tremendously affected the market, but uh, I actually did a little bit of research. I have a friend who works at a gallery. She's a manager, and I said, "What what should I ask him?" Uh, so that it makes it seem like I'm not just some financial journalist. <laughs> and and she said, "Well, ask him about um, virtual showings." And some of the fatigue that's happening with with virtual showings right now. So, how has COVID changed your ability to showcase works, um, to go out and find works and verify them? Um, what are the big effects that are happening because of what's happening to all of us? Well, I think it's so. It's interesting. I was having this conversation with a, a good friend who who I won't name, who's a um, who who owns a major major gallery um, with offices or you know with galleries around the world. And I was asking him this question, like, how, how have virtual showings impacted you guys? And he answered it very well, which he said, look, if someone knows what they want to buy, it's very easy for me to sell it to them online, right? They know the artist, they know the example they're looking for. I find it for them. I show it to them online. They'll pay $10 million for that painting. But if I need to sell a painting, I need to have them standing in front of it. And I think it's a good way to think about it, right? Like they're they're selling a painting in person when someone's not bought into purchasing it is always going to be far more effective than online. So I, I think that's what the art world's missing right now is really just the ability to sell people uh, into things that they're, they're otherwise not considering. Well, that brings up an interesting point because having talked to her, my friend, she says, you know, they have clients, they, they do almost no walk-ins. It's like, what are you doing right now with COVID? How are you dealing with people coming in? How many people are you allowing in the gallery? And she's like, we actually lock our doors during the day. We don't, um, we don't really take walk-ins. 
99% of our business comes from repeat customers. Do you find that repeat customers are the majority of your base? And do you do any of the sort of brokering and sourcing and you tap somebody and say, hey, I think we have something for you that a traditional gallery might be doing? Yeah, well, I, I guess so. Let me let me bifurcate um, our investors who we think of as our customers, right? With people that we would sell paintings to, which would be collectors, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so our investors are definitely repeat investors. I mean, we, it's really interesting. Like if we look at our cohorts going back to uh, really the very first painting we launched about a year and a half ago now, um, you know, those cohorts are still kind of going up and to the right. So we haven't, you know, now, whatever, 500 days later, we really haven't seen them slow down, meaning that people are continuing to invest in more and more and more paintings. Um, you know, in terms of who we sell paintings to, it, it really it really depends on the artist. Um, so certain artists have certain galleries that represent them and know the collectors that are collecting those artists. The art market's also very event-driven. So when it comes time to sell a painting, you tend to want to sell a painting into a hot market, right? So you want to sell a painting by an artist who's setting a record, by an artist who has a retrospective. There's some event usually that's driving the timing of, of when you sell. Okay. And you talked about your team that you have are these art majors? Are they CFAs? Is it a combination of both? So who, who is the right person to be making these sorts of decisions for you guys? Yeah, so we have, um, so we have 45 people in Masterworks. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I said I've been collecting for 20 years. I have a top 100 collection uh, in the U.S., know the art market very well, um, have assembled, I guess, a research team, that, that has kind of art market experience from, from a data perspective, which is hard to find, uh, have assembled an, an acquisitions team, which primarily has auction house experience, transactional experience, and then really uh, the, you know, the, the um, kind of the finance people, the sales people on our membership team, um, and the technology people to build the platform. So we, you know, we're really kind of, um, we're sort of doing everything ourselves, right? We're building a website, marketing, Running, running marketing to drive investors to the website to raise capital. We're doing all of our legal work in house now, um, and, a, and a lot of it's just you know we're, the cadence of our offerings is doing one offering now about every ten days. So we've we've pretty much insourced everything at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean we we have a gallery in Soho, Broom and West Broadway. So if anyone ever who's listening wants to swing by and see paintings or see the operation, that's that's where the team is. Okay, well I'm. I'm in Nolita just down the road. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll swing by one of these days. Um, but I, I wanted to talk about the trading because that seems to be something new that you guys have done. Yeah. Can you talk to me about volumes there, the size of transactions that's happening in trading? Are people day trading these paintings or are they just, how, how is that working? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> so, we, you know, it's all, it's all over the map right now. So we launched... The secondary markets. Um, I think about six months ago, maybe even maybe even slightly less than six months ago, and we put paintings on the secondary market uh, ninety days after they close, which is a regulatory requirement. Um, and yeah, we're seeing we're seeing people buy shares to speculate on future future value. We're seeing people sell shares. Um, we're definitely seeing more activity than I think we thought we would see. We Version one of the trading platform is relatively simple and fairly straightforward. So we weren't we weren't quite sure um, how much engagement there would be, but there's definitely been a ton of engagement. So you know, I think when we think about goals for liquidity long term, 
We'd like to get to 50% of NAV or more trading every single year. Um, you know, I think we're at about a third of that now. So we haven't put that much effort into it. It's growing quickly. I'm pretty confident it'll get there. Um, but it's it's really important to us because when we when we think about the asset class, inherently it's a liquid. So anything we can do to create more liquidity will just bring more investors into it. So we we view it as a pretty strategically important part of the business. Mm-hmm. And I mean, having looked at the the charts of returns, I don't know why anyone would want to do this. But what about um, shorting? Do you think that there will ever be a time when you could get short Picasso? I mean, it's interesting. <clears throat> I can't think about that now. I've got eight thousand other things to think about. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you can definitely see that world, right? I, I, there needs to be lots of liquidity. We get asked about ETFs a lot. Could you ever, you know, do an ETF? Um, you know, I think we need a lot more uh, a lot more liquidity than what we have today. But all of those things are interesting down the road. Okay. Very cool. Well, I guess uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is some of the reasons that people are moving into the alternative asset space is because as an institution, you can't go out and get yield anymore. And there's this sort of just quest for yield as interest rates have gone lower and lower. Do you see this low interest rate environment? One, it's, it's you know, people can tap these capital, can tap uh, their credit lines at super low rates, these ultra wealthy people who are the ones buying in the market. But as well, the institutions um, who buy a lot of these things, um, my, my girlfriend, for instance, used to work at Progressive Insurance, and they have one of the largest private collections. Um, and they're just a little insurance company in Ohio. Um, and, and so I have to wonder how that has affected you guys. And do you pay attention to those sorts of macro um, factors which are driving you know, asset allocation decisions from these big, big institutions. Yeah. So there's there's three. Well, so I, I, there's a couple of questions there. So one, just a comment on debt high level. So there's three banks today that lend against art. Um, Cities one, U.S. Trust is another, and then Sotheby's Financial Group is is the last. Um, obviously, the latter not being a bank, but. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we, <clears throat> we've tried to do a bunch of analysis on this and our CFO was actually running one of the largest boutique, uh, art-based lenders before he, before he came to Masterworks. So we, we have a lot of experience with it. I don't think debt significantly drives art prices, meaning I don't think there's enough leverage in the art market relative to the wealth of, of the average collector that, um, <clears throat> it considerably impacts art prices one way or another. You know, we don't know that, and we'll we'll certainly probably continue to see more and more and more leverage over the next several years um, with the way with the way things are going. Why but, not? I mean, at, at one yeah, point I mean, when you that's what that's what I was just going to say. When you look at a lot of these artists, I mean, you know, we our, our very lowest historical appreciation for an artist that we we look at is someone like Monet, which is seven or eight percent. You know, highest historical appreciation is above. You know, I think we just did a Christopher Wool painting recently, is thirty seven percent you know, a lot of these artists are clearly outpacing other asset classes. Um, and, you know, someone like Monet sells $400 million a year. Someone like Christopher Wool might sell 20 or $30 million a year, maybe $40 million a year. Um, so they're, they're still sizable, you know, even, even the smaller ones that are, that are more risky, but yeah, I mean, it does definitely make sense to think about using leverage. I, I just don't know how much of it is, is practically used in the art market. And you brought up an interesting uh, topic, which is like illiquidity premium. Is there, when you, when you think about returns, is it the big, you know, 400 million for a Monet? Uh, and that's like the total volume of sales in a year versus somebody else trading at like 20, 30 million. 
Uh, do you see returns correlated to that volume that, that lower volumes generally are correlated to higher returns? Yeah, so we see <clears throat> we see returns correlated more to um, risk or volatility. So when we think about when we think about artist markets, we tend to think about them like any other asset class. We look at the historical return, we look at the standard deviation of return, and then we look at the risk adjusted return, or what some might think of as a sharp ratio. And it's interesting we have, we have two different within our within our risk framework. We have two different risk buckets. One is risk bucket A, which are artists like Monet, Warhol, Basquiat, etc. Um, what we consider to be the most the most stable artists within the art market. Um, those are generally artists that are selling more than $100 million a year. So if you assume that whatever, 5% of, of their um, total work sells every year, you know, they're probably at least a couple billion dollar market cap artists. And then we have this risk bucket B, which are mid-career, late-career living artists that are generally returning 15% plus um, per year, but have a higher standard deviation or a higher volatility. Now, one of the, the key takeaways, I think early on from our research team that's really interesting, is if you look at the risk-adjusted returns in both of those buckets, they're basically the same. Meaning, there's not a right choice or a wrong choice. The, you know, the lower return artists have lower risk, the higher return artists have higher risk, the, the risk-adjusted returns are the same. So we, we tend to tell investors to think about um, those two different buckets not based on which is you know the right decision or the wrong decision, but based on sort of what their risk and, and return preferences are. Okay. Well, I know we're coming to the end. You brought up one final question I want to get into and then give you an opportunity to sort of put a bow on it and, and give your final takeaways you'd like all of our listeners to do. But uh, you talked about late career artists who, who are also some of the people you're looking at. Is there a death pop? Like, <laughs> is there a pop in the market when somebody dies? It's October, like, Halloween's on the way. I, I'm going to get a little morbid here. I feel like I'll, I feel like I can't wait until I get through an interview without someone asking me about what happens, <laughs> what happens when an artist dies. Um, so look, I, again, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say to so the answer is yes and no. And, and the reason I would say yes and no is that uh, definitely when an artist dies, they stop creating work. And when they stop creating work, supply starts shrinking. So, so the reason you see prices go up when artists die is not because they die, which is the no part of my answer, but because they can no longer make work, right? So it, there's, there's nothing significant about the artist himself dying other than the supply just starts shrinking over time. So over the next 10 or 20 years, there's, there's fewer and fewer works left to purchase. So if that artist was culturally significant, then you can expect those prices to continue to, continue to rise. Okay. Well, thank you for, for indulging my morbid curiosities, <laughs> uh, but, but we'll allow you to finish it on a, on a more um, energetic note. Uh, why don't you just tell us, you know, if, if you have two minutes to, to make the case for art investing for people who are not those ultra high net worth individuals, uh, this, is your, this is your opportunity. Yeah, look, I mean, at it, it, a very high level, and, and we publish this research on our website and we publish the data so you can, you can conclude it yourself, but you have an asset class which has outperformed public equities. Um, you can read the report that we did with Citigroup that shows that it's uncorrelated. Uh, any strategic asset class is defined as an asset class that beats inflation and is uncorrelated. Luckily with art, you know, not only does it beat inflation, but it also outperforms uh, most other asset classes. If you look at loss rates um, compared to things like gold, and we've measured them on, on three-year trailing periods, loss rates are lower, magnitude of loss is lower. The challenge historically with the asset class has always been that you have to have millions of dollars to, to participate. I think Masterworks has changed that. So we, we do believe in a world where everyone should have 
some allocation to art. And today for us, that means, you know, we have the masterworks.io website where you can go and invest in these paintings. Uh, in the future, that might mean that we build other product offerings like fun product offerings, et cetera, uh, something for the managed money community. But but right now we're starting small and just just growing from there. All right. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was a lot of fun and really cool to learn about this, this not new asset class, but uh, newly available asset class. Awesome. Thanks, Max. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.